whenever you throw rocks at your ex, they invariably ricochet off the children on the way to their intended target. Let's imagine that you're part of a blended family. You have a previous relationship, maybe children from a previous relationship, and now you're trying to make a family work. And your ex comes back in the picture, and like exes do, they're just blowing up everything that you're trying to make work. I know you're tempted to just sit there and throw rocks at your ex, but David Dusak has some brilliant advice for you. Listen to his words as we get ready to start this episode of Unbeatable. These stories of triumph over adversity will help you handle your toughest days in life. You're listening to Unbeatable with Jeff Strucker. David, thank you so much for being with us. And man, I just really want to thank you for making a trip all the way up from Florida to be in the studio today. Jeff, it's totally my honor. I'm, I'm just thrilled to be here. Yeah. Um, hey, we want to talk a little bit about your latest book, about your video series that came out. We want to talk about um, um, the whole uh, ministry that you've got going on. But before yeah. we do that, let's sure. talk a little bit about how you ended up doing this thing. Um, let's talk about, uh, growing up a kid who was, uh, moved out to the West coast when mom and dad headed out to Oregon and they kind of brought you along out there. Can you describe a little bit about what life was like growing up? Oh, it was, it was fantastic growing up. And I grew up in, uh, what I say, I call up North, uh, for Floridians, that's Jacksonville. Cause it's right up on the Georgia border. And I was a happy kid. And, my mom is originally from Utah. Dad's originally from Pennsylvania. Not big fans of hot and humidity. And <clears throat> and there's me, plenty so, of that in Jacksonville, Florida. A ton. Yeah. And so my dad went out. They went out to visit Oregon, and they fell in love with it. They came back. I was 12 years old, and they, they said, guess what? We're moving to Oregon. Oh, I'll okay. never forget, because this was April 15th at midnight, because my dad always waited to file the taxes until the last minute. And he drove to the main post office branch in downtown Jacksonville. So we all went as a family at 1159 to postmark the taxes. Nice. And then they told us on the way home that we were moving and to Oregon. And he pulled the bait and switch on you because the temperature in Oregon is slightly different in, than Jacksonville, Florida. I was, we got there in, in mid-August, and I'll never forget seeing kids out in the street skateboarding, and it was 60 degrees. 60 yeah. degrees to me is... You know, bundle up jacket, beanie. put on a parka. Yeah, at least you know a good fleece because it was freezing, and so it was culture shock. And it was also culture shock because this was back prior to the days of MTV, and and so fashions were completely opposite on opposite coasts. There was no consistency for people. So I went out there wearing what you'd wear popularly in Florida, and, and you uh, were an oddball, right? And I right. had a southern accent that I had to work very hard to get rid of. So, uh, you know. First conversation I had in the first day of middle school, which is a terrible time to move a kid, uh, they were talking about roller skating because back in 1978, that was the thing, you know, wide leg pants and roller disco and all that. So I, you I, did roller disco I did. I, with the shorty shorts and everything. I, I did. did. You no, I did. No, shorts. I did. The, I had the big old flared okay. wide legs right. that covered the entire, okay. s entire skate. But uh, they said, are you, we're going to go, they were, I heard all this chatter about going roller skating. And I said, oh, really, where do y'all go roller skating? And I'll never forget the girl sitting right in front of me, turned around and glared at me like I had three heads. And she said, what's a y'all? And so now, you know, uh, I had spent, I spent about 18 years there working very hard to get rid of my Southern accent before I moved back to Florida. And then I just kind of 
slid right back into it again. Mom and dad stayed in Oregon. Yeah. You headed back to Florida. I did. When? Headed back to Florida late 1999, early 2000, that uh-huh. era. I uh, just started firing resumes to companies in the whole state. And I had an offer for Miami. You, you literally sent every single company in the state of Florida a resume and said, "I get me out of Oregon <laughs> as fast as I in can. My, as, in the industry I was in, I did literally just start shooting resumes all over the place. I got some great offers and God moved me back. But of course, I didn't know who God was yeah. at that point. I just kind of moved back thinking I'd figured it all out on yeah. my own. How old were you when you headed back to Florida? Oh, 34. And that was your first time away from, you know, moving other side of the country away from parents? No, I'd gone to college uh-huh. and, and had lived on my own on the other side, I of, see. other side of town. And frankly, as, as I grew older, uh, there was a bit of a falling out. And so even though I was 20 minutes away from my mom and dad, we didn't really see each other all yeah. that much. Um, yeah. I was, I was off the rails for a significant amount of time and then came back and yeah, without digging into the dirt of your past, David, one of the things that I learned about you is that you had an, uh, a, let's call it a challenging relationship with your father for a while. Um, and then over, over the course of time, you put the work in to rebuild that relationship, ultimately to, to, to forgive and to restore. And I want to spend a moment or two on this because I think for the listeners to really be unbeatable, all of us get hurt, all of us get done wrong by other people. And I'm convinced that some of the greatest difficulties that we'll ever have to do is learning how to forgive because that's just really, really hard to do. So can you tell a little bit about what it took to restore your relationship with your father? Oh man, Um, let's back up first. Extending forgiveness is one thing. Um, seeking forgiveness is yeah. entirely different. Yeah. And I learned firsthand, you know, the Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our trespasses, cleanse us of all unrighteousness. God's forgiveness is immediate. People, not so much. Yeah. Um, I harbored a lot of animosity towards a man who did nothing but help me out. And I don't want to go into great detail, but I wouldn't be sitting here uh, if it wasn't for some things that my father did behind the curtain. Yeah that I didn't even know about. Uh-huh. And I called my mom one day, this was in 2012. And I said, you know, I really would like to talk to dad. And she says, I don't think that would be a good idea. Really? Yeah. And I said, well, why? And I, I was sitting in my garage on my Bluetooth. The door was up, the car uh-huh. was still running. I wasn't trying to gas myself or anything. But <laughs> uh, I remember my wife, Joni, poking her head out several times while I was having this long conversation. And my mom gave me this somewhat lengthy recount of everything that I had done and everything that he had done for me that I was unaware of. And I believe that when we become this new creation in Christ, we honestly end up with almost supernatural amnesia. And I'd forgotten what this old, I call him Dave. Yeah, the what, old, old person. What Dave had done uh, before he became this new creation named David. And so she's recapping all of these things that I had completely forgotten about. And she said at the end of it, she said, and you know, after everything he did for you, Instead of saying thank you, you said something else to him that was horrible. And at that moment, God broke me, and I broke into tears, and I walked into my house, and my wife looked at me, and I said, I have to fly to Oregon. And so I walked over to my laptop, really? booked a ticket. On the uh, spot, just on like the that. On the spot, booked a ticket, wow. booked a rental car, and literally showed up the next two days later at my parents' house uh, unannounced. 
and walked in and my mom gave me this glorious hug. And, um, I grew up in the, just, you wait till your father gets home generation. Yeah. And we knew when we heard the garage door go up, that it was either going to be a great night or a terrible night, depending on how we treated mom. <laughs> uh-huh. And I was sitting there talking to my mom, uh, in 2012, you know, 10 years ago, and I heard the garage door go up and I was mortified. And I heard my dad n- not moving, not nearly as quickly as he used to move. He uh-huh. showed up at the top of the stairs and he saw me and he said, son, I said, Hey dad, he wasn't the least bit surprised that I was there for some reason. And he sat down and I went into this lengthy apology and said, you know, I, I would love to have a relationship with you. And I understand if you don't want to, and what you see may look like the same guy, but I promise you, if you watch me long enough, I'm a different person. I just need a chance. But if I don't get one, I'm fine with that. And his response um, was not what I expected. He said, son, after everything I did for you, you called me those horrible names. And I don't know if I can ever forgive that. And fortunately, I had a hotel reserved and I was yeah. dying for some Taco Bell. So I was ready to get out of there. It was wildly uncomfortable. And um, mom said, well, you know, why don't you stick around for dinner? And I knew what she was trying to do. She was trying to keep yeah, me and dad right. in the same room yeah. at the same time. And uh, Ended up food wasn't going to be done on time. So we ended up going out and I said, y'all have a good time. And my dad said, why don't you come with us? And so I went to dinner with them and it was really like God pushed the rewind button and I was nine years old again. We uh-huh. had a great dinner. And several days later I went to leave and my mom and dad were standing at the landing of the front door uh, at like three o'clock in the morning. Cause I had like a zero five thirty flight home and, um, I hugged my dad and I said, I'm sorry again. And he said, you know, I don't know how this is going to work out, but you just keep doing what you're doing. I think we'll be okay. And really? Yeah. Wow. And it's been 10 years and, yeah. uh, I go out to Oregon a lot to speak. And every time I'm there, we stay at their house. We just spent Thanksgiving with my mom and my dad and my sister and brother-in-law and their whole family. It's the first holiday I had spent with my parents in 24 years. Yeah. And it was amazing. Uh, but I had to make the first move, Jeff. Right. I mean, it really was my my move that started the landslide of forgiveness. Well, the reason I'm asking, David, is because there are, I'm going to be uh, conservative with this estimate, a billion guys, young guys right now that have a very rough, if no relationship whatsoever with their father. Yeah. Maybe it's because dad did something really wrong growing up and it's all dad's fault. Maybe it's because they did something really wrong growing up and it's their fault or chances are it's a combination. Sure. But that reconciling those things, finding forgiveness, making uh, amends, that stuff doesn't come easy. Uh, It can be some of the toughest work that you'll ever do. And I really want to ask for those billion guys out there, not that they're all listening to this podcast because <laughs> it would be like number one on every platform in the planet, but bring it, bring it. Come on. for those guys that are asking the question, what is it like with you and dad today? What kind of hope could you give them? My relationship with my dad was a full blown reset. Um, really? On Thanksgiving. And I know my wife's not going to want me to say this, but at Thanksgiving, she made all the dinner because he had put a moratorium on my mom and said, you are not making food for everybody again, because it's too much work. Yeah. So Joni volunteered. She said, we're going to fly out there. I'm going to make the whole dinner, all the desserts. All right. Come on. So we went out to my, used my sister's kitchen and my wife made literally everything. We had 11 or 12 people over. And before, now my dad's former military. um, So there's a lot of discipline, but there's also a lot lot of propriety. And so before he even put a bite of food in his mouth, he stood up and he 
gave her a standing ovation. Wow. For making all the food. That's cool. And I knew then that not only did he accept me, but he accepted my new wife. Yeah. He accepted our relationship. He saw in her what I see in her. Uh-huh. And as we continue to have these experiences, um, they're going to church now. They're active uh, in the faith. What to, to what degree, I don't know. Yeah. But there was so much more to just biting the bullet. But guys, I will tell you right now, the most horrifying experience of my life uh, was getting on that airplane. Yeah, and, and not knowing how it's going to go no. when you show up at the door. And you want to know what else happened? The flight door, the plane door wouldn't close uh, in Tampa. I was flying Tampa to Atlanta, Atlanta to Portland. So I was three and a half hours late for my connection to Atlanta. So when I got to Atlanta, I'd missed my connection. And it was the last flight out. So I had to spend the night on Delta for the bill for it. But I had to spend the night in a hotel in Atlanta. Worry, wondering what this is going to, what's going to happen tomorrow. You know, I'm going to have, I have to wait another 20, because I was all ramped up and ready to get this thing done. And as it turned out, I was going to get there really late at night. And I wouldn't have been to clear thinking. And so I got to have a whole afternoon to sit with my mom and dad instead. So I think it was just a matter of, uh, I wasn't quite ready yet. So I got stuck, but that was, that, that was awful. (laughs) Well, stuck in a hotel alone. Yeah. For the guys out there that are hearing you that have a really rough relationship with a, with a parent, especially with their dad, um, you didn't know walking up to the door what how this thing was going to turn out, but you knew I got to take the first step. I got to do my part, and whatever happens next, happens next. And I, I hope that people are hearing from you, and they're in the back of their mind. They know I need to get on an airplane, or I need to make a phone call, and I need to do my part. I don't have any control over how this ends up, but I got to do my part. Well, the reminder that I gave myself over and over again, and my wife did, and the people that were praying in advance of me going to this thing, because I had spoken to people about it. Um, we are not responsible for how people respond when we ask for yeah, forgiveness. That's right. That's between them and God, yep. you know, whatever. Um, at that point, our banner is clear. We have sought forgiveness with a true and open and authentic heart. And what they do with that is yeah. on them. And it, it took probably six years for my dad to really get it. Yeah. You know, it wasn't one of those things where we had this joyous hugging it father was all son over moment. In a second. Yeah. I was expecting it to be, oh, I forgive you, I love you. you yeah. know? And it just did not go that route. And it took a lot of repetition. It took a lot of consistency. You have to learn how the man communicates. My dad doesn't do email. He doesn't do text messaging. He doesn't <laughs> do voicemail. To no, say he's, the least. He doesn't even like fax machines, yeah. right? So uh, when I call him, they're usually very short calls. And my mom told me not too long ago that even though they last maybe three or four minutes, he just does not like to talk yeah. on the phone. Um, he always comes home. Cause I call him at the office. The man's 85 still goes to work every day. Uh-huh. I call him at the office and then he'll go home and tell my mom absolutely everything we talked about, even if it's a five minute conversation. Really? And she said, it means that much to your father that you just call yeah. him just to say hi. Yeah. Well, David, one of the things that I really appreciate about you is that you're a guy who has made some mistakes in the past. You don't hide those mistakes. You're willing to own them. And um, one of perhaps some of those mistakes had to do with a marriage and the children in your first relationship. Yeah. Um, Without going into all of the details, I don't want to spend the whole episode doing that. Can you kind of talk about how things ended up with your first wife and the divorce and the children that the two children you guys had together that to some degree stayed with, with her? Yeah, well, they did stay with her, actually. When, when the divorce happened, uh, we were in Florida. 
and she's originally from the Pacific Northwest. So she decided to move back to Washington Taking the State, children, heading back. Taking to, the kids. Yeah. I didn't want to be that guy who rocked the boat. So right. I said, you take the kids. They're going to be better off with mom anyway. And, and so I became a, a summertime dad, um, which was painful at best. And at some point, she decided that she wanted to move back to Florida. Uh, really not 100% sure why. She said it's because she wanted the kids to be near me, uh-huh. which was an answer to prayer because I had lived a whole year without my kids and it was awful. And so she came back and lived in an apartment. And so we started seeing the ki- my kids every so often. Um, and then obviously, you know, there's a lot more to that story because later later on she was diagnosed with cancer very young. She was in her 30s uh, and moved back to back, see, to back, back, out, to, west. back uh-huh. out west for cancer treatment. Um, my daughter moved in with my, now I'm remarried, moved in with my wife and uh, our my three stepkids, uh, but my son went with his mom. And so I didn't spend much time at all uh, with my son, Jordan, who that's a whole other story of yeah. uh, me being a prodigal. And uh-huh. then of course I, it's generational. I was a prodigal and then I ended up with one as well. So a lot of things went down over that season. Um, including my salvation. You know, I met the Lord after everything kind of fell apart. I had my car and stuff in the trunk, lost the house, kids. That was really? it. Really? Yeah. Yeah. You were living out of your car? Well, no, I was, I was in my car uh-huh. trying to figure out what I was going to do. I, I actually met the Lord at the top of the Sunshine Skyway Bridge over Tampa Bay. All right. Tell everybody what happened. Uh, I had, uh, there's so much truth. To, <laughs> you don't know how much you need Jesus until Jesus is all you have. But here I am driving my car. I got no place to go. And as I'm driving across the top of the Sunshine Skyway Bridge, it is um, notoriously a jumper bridge. Mm -hmm. So there are actually crisis intervention phones about every 50 meters or so across both sides of the bridge. And as I got to the highest point of the bridge, I remember saying, you know, God, if you exist, this will be an excellent time to show up because I'm shattered. And Jeff, every hair on my arm stood up and I knew that he was real. And I drove down the other side of new creation. I was baptized in the Gulf of Mexico Shortly thereafter, and in ministry, several years later, I mean, it just—it wow. was that—that that is my road to Damascus, the yeah. top of that bridge. Yeah. And one of the coolest things about that bridge is every time I fly anywhere, I have to drive over it to go do ministry, and uh-huh. I travel a hundred days a year. So I get to drive over that same bridge where it all started. Yeah, um, it was just an incredible yeah. experience. You know? Well. I heard you say just recently about the challenges of building a family. So I want to kind of lay mm-hmm. the groundwork and then I want you to describe um, this, the, the hard work that you did as a husband, as a dad to, to bring a blended family together because the average family in our country is blended. Mm-hmm. Um, previous relationships, children from previous relationships come together and try to figure out how to make these things work. But but uh, there's a host of problems. We're not going to go into all of the problems there. But you, um, you had two children with an ex-wife mm-hmm. who was diagnosed with cancer. And just go ahead and let everybody know what happened to your ex-wife. She was diagnosed with cancer and um, colon cancer in November of 2007 and died May 28th, 2009. So yeah. she died 18 months to the day after her diagnosis. You were already remarried at the time. Mm-hmm. You have your uh, new wife has three children, mm-hmm. and now you're trying to learn how to be a husband and a father to three children when your ex-wife passes and you have two other children that are um, that need a dad. 
basically. Yeah. They've needed a dad all along, but now they really need a dad. So I hope somebody's driving around uh, listening to this episode right now saying he's describing exactly what's going on in my life. And it feels like every day when I go home, it's a war zone. And I feel like a total failure at home. I got things figured out at work, but I cannot figure out how to make this blended family um, work. Would you just describe some of the challenges and how you face those challenges of building a family? Wow. After, after all of that. Well, you know, my daughter, when my ex-wife was diagnosed with cancer, moved in with us. So we had four kids, uh, one biological kid of mine and three stepkids. And the great thing was that the girls are the same age and in the oh, same grade. that's cool. So they're so kind I mean, of be- become friends. They were living in a bunk bed in the same room when they were could have more than easily had their own space. They just loved, yeah. they loved hanging out together. So they were best friends from the age of 10 on uh, and still are. You know, I mean, even to this day, they're yeah. closing in on 30 and they're still, they're still great Beautiful. friends. Very but, nice. Then my son came back in when she passed away and he had not chosen the wisest path. Uh, was, he made some mistakes. Was Let's in, just was, put it that way, was, right? Was dabbling in things that he shouldn't have dabbled in and, and basically had some addiction issues. And uh, we went through a crisis there as well. But I mean, just look, uh, 41% of the guys walking around the world are divorced, remarried, blended, like you're saying. And uh, unless you've spilled the same blood and the same mud, you don't know what it's like right. to raise another man's kids yeah. part-time because we still had, their dad was active. So I had uh, you know, about 60% of the time I had her kids under the roof. And I think the number one thing that really set the tone for blending successfully, if there is such a thing. That's what I'm asking. What's the secret sauce? Because lots of guys are trying to figure this one out. Love mom, no matter what. Okay. You've got to model what you want your children to ultimately marry. And so in spite of the conflicts, even if we had conflict internally between my wife and I, we made sure that all of the kids, regardless of, we, there was no step in our house. Yeah. It just, it, we just didn't use that. Uh, my daughter still calls her sister, her sister, you uh-huh. know, even though they're not biologically sisters, it's just, it, the blend was, was all God to start with. I mean, really, we didn't have the struggles that I know that some do, but there was a lot of infighting occasionally. Yeah. Um, there was two kids that had no mother uh-huh. um, who were really kind of not sure how to take their stepmom, who became their full-time maternal figure anyway. So there was some conflict there. There were some hurt feelings uh, all around the house. And so... We just had to work through those a day at a time. And forgiveness was always on the yeah. front, was always on the front line. I mean, if you're not forgiving and you're hanging on to animosity, then you can never be freed. Right. You know, they say for, unforgiveness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person uh-huh. to die. You're never going to get through what you're, what you're dealing with if you first don't love each other. And it starts with mom and dad. Yeah. You know, we are, it's a second marriage and the statistics on second marriages are more dreadful than, yeah, they're more dreadful than first marriages. So we both made a concerted effort to keep our vertical walk with the Lord, right. And our marriage, right. And bring the kids along. And that's not saying we blended perfectly. And there are some times guys, there are certain situations as the uh, designated disciplinarian in the Uh home. Wait till dad gets home guy. Right. 
there are some lines that you don't want to cross with a non-biological child yeah. that you can cross with your own. You know, you can knock them in the next week if they're yours. I'm kidding, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but you don't want to walk into the mommy clause while you're trying to discipline one of her children. Right. And so that was where we had probably our greatest struggles is, okay, where are the lines on my responsibility, my limits, who's having the difficult conversations with young yeah. boys? Uh, you know, uh, so that was... That was a struggle too. And I mean, I believe me, anybody that's listening, I, I feel your pain. I know what you're going through. You just get up and you do the work. Yeah. I want to go back to what you said just a second ago. The, the guy or the gal that's listening right now who's in a blended family trying to make this marriage work and have children. And by the way, there's an ex or there's an, uh, you know, the, the baby daddy or an ex-wife out there that still is, uh, you know, complicating things. Um, when we started, uh, when I asked you the secret sauce, I am certain you shock some people with your answer because I assume that they're thinking, well, certainly it has to do with setting some rules and the, the family, you know, the, the way the family behaves and all those things are important. Um, but you said something that I, th I think needs to be said again. So tell everybody what was the secret sauce that made this thing work for you guys? The best way to love your children is to love their mom. Yeah. And, and uh, forgive fast. Right. The, the reason why I'm asking you to say that a second time is because what you're describing is, hey, you have to show the kind of family that you want your family to become. Mm -hmm. But not only that, show your children the kind of family that you hope they will have one day. And it's not easy. I mean, just raising a family anywhere on the planet today is not easy, let alone raising a blended family. Well, and, and you're also dealing with, with other parents, ex-spouses. Um, and I will, I will make this statement, and guys, ladies, you'll probably want to write it down. Unless you're driving, keep driving. Yeah, you don't yes, have to start writing a, while yeah, you're driving. Yeah, make a voice. Remember, yeah, sorry about that. If you th whenever you throw rocks at your ex... They invariably ricochet off the children on the way to their intended target. Oh, boy. I hope you guys heard that one. Say that one one more time because they need to hear it again. If you throw rocks at your ex. And it's easy to throw rocks at the ex. Let's just be honest. They will invariably ricochet off the children on the way to their intended target. Yeah. You cannot diss mama and not have it bang off one of the kids on the way. Yeah. They're gonna hear, they'll hear the closed-door conversations. They'll hear you disparaging ex-husband, uh -huh. ex-wife. And what it will do was it will undermine every bit of effort you're making in your home um, in a moment of anger. You know, words have a long shelf life. Oh, man. Yeah, Kids don't do. forget stuff. Yeah. And they'll remember what you say. Even if you say, hey, I'm sorry, I didn't mean that. They're going to hang on to it. Yeah. The jury will not disregard what they just heard. Let's put it that way. That is such great advice because when you're in a heated argument about, uh, you know, a blended <laughs> family, you want so bad to say something really bad about the spouse, about the ex. Um, but if you do that, a lot of that is going to make its way back to you. So it's going to come learning, back. It's going to boomerang. Yeah. Learning to keep your mouth shut. If you, that's something I'm still working on. Do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? Yeah. I mean, that's really oh, it. Oh, that's do a you, good question right you, there to do, keep in mind. Do you want to build a successful family or do you want to, in a moment of anger, I have a ready fire aim mouth. Sometimes yeah. I just, I forget to dial in the coordinates. I just send, you know, fire for effect and I hit the wrong spot. Um, and I've said things, I promise you to my wife. From years ago, 
that she'll say, you know, that is just like this, what you said in 2004. It's like, you've got to be kidding me. I can't remember what I had <laughs> for breakfast. She's keeping a record and from 2004. No, it's just in the data banks. Yeah, They've got all these I windows I know open. What you're and, and it just comes back and it's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you even remember that. Yeah. I forgot that I said it. And I said some things, honestly, Jeff, to my son that came back on me that I had completely forgotten yeah. about that was the linchpin to us restoring our relationship yeah. uh, also. So, I mean, words... The tongue has the power to bring life and bring death. Oh, yeah. You know, same mouth, same person. It's what we choose to say right. in the heat of anger that can come back badly. Okay, so now let's ratchet it up a notch. Just because it's already hard enough, let's just make it really hard. Um, let's talk the stresses and the pressures that go along with the military and trying to be a good dad or trying to be a good mom, but also serving in the military and all of the pressures that go along with that. And I'm asking you to kind of introduce this part of the conversation because, David, you're really working hard to, um, to challenge guys to be the kind of men that they should be all along. Absolutely. And I, I, I say often that life is about balance. People use the word accountability. I even saw that you had done something recently about accountability as well. And accountability is one of the most maligned words in the English language, especially in the lives of men, because yeah. what it does is it conjures up these ideas of guys scrolling through our internet history and asking us what we're thinking about. And, and it's become this, don't do this, don't do that, don't look at this, say that. I mean, it's always don't, when in fact accountability is really more about balance. It's making sure that, look, if you're an accountant, you are going to be in the office from January 1 to April 15th for 90 hours a yeah, week. Yeah. There's no way around Basically it. from the before the sun comes up till it goes down. If you're in the military, you're go, there are going to be integrated deployments that come in and oh. out of your life where you're going yep. to be away from home for seven, eight, nine, ten 10 months out of a given year. We're going to miss oftentimes an entire year of your uh -huh. kid growing up. When you're there, you have to be all in. Um, when, you're, when you're coming home from the office, just remind yourself, I am going into the most important meeting of my day. Regardless of how awful your day was, no one cares what you do for work. They want dad. That's they right. want husband. So an accountability, because it's about balance, accountability requires an accountability partner. And I think one of the game changers in my life has been having a, a battle buddy in my life to say, I haven't seen a date night in your calendar. Yeah. I, how? When was the last time you all went out? Without the kids, without the pizza, without the, you know, the $5 value meals, when was the last time you just went out and spent the evening with your wife? Because again, bring it full circle, loving your wife is how you love yeah. the kids. So when you start integrating all of these other things, work, um, military deployments, uh -huh. training schedules, all of the things that go hand in hand, National Training Center, where you're gone for a couple of weeks, all these things that, that come into play, when you're home, you have to be there. You can't just be physically present. There's a lot of absentee moms and dads that are physically in the room and we're just so disengaged. I'm guilty of it myself and have been before where I've, I'm still focused on work and I work from home. And there are times when my wife will walk by the laptop with me sitting in front of it at nine o'clock at night. And she'll ask me, are you planning on coming home from the office today? While you're sitting right next While to I'm her. I'm, yeah. I'm there, but I'm not, but you're not there. I'm not and there. she knows, and you know that you're not sure. There. Eye contact, Caring, responding, listening—that's yeah. um, that will oftentimes stave off the tempest of accumulated hurt. Because what happens is uh, things accumulate, and your wife or your husband may just go completely off the rails on something relatively small. But you have to understand that there are things that have built up to that breaking point 
that we can help defend and stave off if we spend the right amount of time just loving our family. Yeah. But office, you know, when you're when you come back from a deployment, you redeploy, ground your gear, love your kids, love mom. You can clean up and check everything back in later. They are your number one ministry and your number one priority. Yeah. When, when you're, you're at home, be all the way at home. Yeah. When you're at work, be all the way at work. Sure. Give it everything you got. But when you're at home, be all the way at home and give your family everything that you got. Exactly. Um, and that's the balance that everybody needs. Yeah. David, you you describe um, in some of your books and in your video series, you describe um, what it looks like to really know, uh, to open yourself up, to be accountable to somebody else, to have to, to have a guy, a dude in your life that's got your six. Mm-hmm. I, I want to talk about that for just a second, because as I look out over society, and I don't mean American society, wherever I travel around the world, I see the same thing. I see a lot of guys that are really busy, men especially. Now, this is true of women as well, that are busy, and you've got 100 acquaintances. Mm-hmm. Or let's just put it this way. you got 250 people that you communicate with on social yeah. media, but you really don't have one legit relationship that knows you deeply can speak some truth into your life. Mm -hmm. And all 100 of those casual acquaintances don't equal one really deep relationship that knows you and can prevent you from making some big catastrophic mistakes with your life. So how does a guy get to that relationship? Okay. Well, the first thing you need to know is it's not just accountability. I believe that there are three needs every man has. There's more than three, but three big ones. Support, encouragement, and accountability. Support is when you can't get up off the ground. Life is somebody's going to grab you and help pick and you up, pull you by the straps oh, off no. of the battlefield, and get you covered so that you can at least live to fight another day. Encouragement. I can count on one hand how many times my father has said he's proud of me, and I'm 56 years old, and I can still have fingers left. Wow. I have lost count of how many times my best friend has said, "You know what, dude? You're a good man." I just saw what you posted. I just, you know. I love you for who you are. You're a great father. You're a great husband, whatever. Those little things also help me live to fight a, another day. And then, of course, obviously accountability, which we won't, we won't beat a dead accountability yeah. horse. <laughs> but you cannot hang a banner in the parking lot of a church, for example, and proclaim it the year of discipleship when most men have 100 acquaintances and no friends. And not one real friend. Right. And I've kind of created a, a mental algorithm on, on how you get there. If you think about a standard issue deployment, day one of a nine-month deployment, four men hop into a, an armored vehicle, a Humvee, and they don't necessarily know each other all that well. They have the same unit patch. They've been at briefings together. They travel together. But they haven't spent a lot of time together. They might even be you know, in the same division and haven't really right. been together at all. But these same four men will mount up in the same Humvee, on the same, sleep in the same plywood box, go outside the wire, fight the same enemy in the same dirt box, nine months straight. And what will happen on the ninth month is a guy will get in a uh, driver's seat. Someone jumps in the right seat, comms guy, guy up on the, uh, on the turret. And the driver looks over at the guy in the right seat and says, are you all right? And he can actually tell that there's something wrong yeah. now without saying a word, just with the non-visibles yeah, without saying a word. And then he, the guy in the right seat proceeds to tell him that his wife has left. He has no home. She yep. wants a divorce. He's got two months left on this particular deployment and he's heartbroken. Now, on the first day, they're talking about how many kids you got, how long you've been in the Army, and who's your favorite college football team. And then on the ninth month, they're talking about these 
life-altering, yeah. devastating really emotional events. Yeah. If they're the same guys in the same truck in the same sandbox fighting the same enemy, there's only one variable, and that's time. Time develops trust. If I don't spend time with you, I will never trust you. If I don't trust you, there'll never be a relationship. Mm -hmm. Think about dating your wife. You, know, you, you didn't pick her up the first Saturday of the month, take her out for pancakes for an hour, do a quick devotional, and then take her home, and then pick her up the next month. You couldn't get enough of that woman. Right. You wanted to spend time with her. It didn't matter what you were doing. It was who you were with. The same thing holds true for brotherhood. doesn't matter what you're doing. You don't have to go to a church event. You don't have to go to a men's conference. You don't have to be plugged into a Bible study at your church. I mean, it's nice if you are. But go shooting, go fishing, go play golf. Yeah. Whatever you love to do, take somebody with you. Because as we spend time with a man, we'll go from, how about them gators? Sorry, I'm a Florida boy. How about them gators to, I think my wife hates me. And the only difference between the first conversation and the second is the fact that I have spent enough time with you now that I can trust you. There will be no rebuke, no reproach. You're not going to browbeat me or make me feel stupid. You are going to give me wise counsel. You're going to stand with me in the fight. You're going to encourage me when I can't go on to fight one more day. And you're going to hold me accountable just to make sure that I have balance and that I'm not about ready to step off the edge of doing something stupid. Yeah. The, the, the information you're hearing from David right now is priceless. And um, David, I got this little section or segment on this show that I like to do. I, we call it the high five. It's my way of kind of reaching across the, the studio right now and giving you a, a big high five. And as I was preparing for this interview with you, I was thinking back to probably the greatest gift that I got while I was in the army. And it's the gift of brotherhood. The awards, all of the awesome training, the, you know, the, the accolades and the responsibilities, none of that stuff compared to the brotherhood that I had while I was in the military. And I'm thinking about a guy or a gal who's listening to this episode right now, just heard what you have to say. And they're thinking, I don't have that guy. I don't even know where to start. So here's what I want to do with this high five segment. I want to have a little fun. But let's just talk about what to look for if you were to try to find like the right kind of dude, if you're a guy, the right kind of gal, if you're a, a woman, to be your wingman if in, in terms of pilots, or to be your ranger buddy, which I would just describe. Um, because one of the greatest things that happened to me is I got a ranger buddy that who knew me and trusted me. I trusted them. We could go deep with each other. And yeah. he got me out of a lot of trouble. And I tried to get him out of some trouble. So Here's my high five segment. I want us to go back and forth just a little bit. If you were to look for something in a Ranger buddy, uh, a, if you were to look for something out there, a guy who fit this bill, what would you uh, describe them as? Well, number one on my list is they need to be strong where I'm weak. And I hope I'm the kind of guy who will be strong where they're weak. I'm telling you this because in the classic Ranger school pair, um, a two-person buddy team will go through extreme periods of food deprivation and sleep deprivation. I've always said the ideal buddy team, one of you can handle the loss of food for a long time <laughs> and the other one can handle the loss of sleep. So you can say, hey man, if you give me a little bit of that food, I'll stay awake for you. And, and I'll stay awake for you if, if I can have a little bit of your food. And where I'm weak, you're strong. And where you're strong, I'm weak. What would you put on your list to look for in a Ranger buddy? First and foremost, full-blown transparency and authenticity. 
Don't blow smoke. Don't tell me everything right, is so awesome. Get real. Don't tell me everything is awesome when it's not. Yeah. Because I want to be able to, I want an open door to say, look, this is a part of my life right now that really stinks. And I want you to say, you know, I've been through that. Because, I mean, that's, authenticity goes a long, long way. Yeah. I want to, I don't want to hear about, you have a friend who, I want to hear what's happening in your life. Right. And I, I, one of the examples that I have is with my particular battle buddy in life. His name's David also, ironically. Um, Just to keep it easy on each other. Yeah, right? it's much easier than, than Jonathan. I mean, uh, but we, I have lost count of how many times we've started a conversation with, you know, I've never told anybody this, but, but if, here you can, goes. if you can start a conversation with, I've never told anybody this, but, and then fill in the blank. You might be on bro, the right you, track. You, you've hit it yeah. because now he knows that you are a safe place. And if you're a safe place, it's anything goes because he is going to make sure that you get through it, whatever yeah. it is. You just mentioned the number, the next thing on my list. I think the ranger, the the guy or the gal that you select to become your buddy, your ranger buddy, needs to be totally honest, totally honest with themselves, but they also need to be totally honest with you. Meaning everybody needs somebody in their court that tells the emperor you're wearing no clothes <laughs> instead of the emperor yep. you're wearing new clothes. You look great. And most guys don't have a dude in their life that can be that honest with them. Nope. I'm saying you need a guy, I need a guy that can be that honest with me in my life. What about you? What's next on your list? Somebody that believes in me more than I believe in myself. Um, think of a, I've got a, back in the day, I wanted to be a competitive bodybuilder and I had a training partner by the name of TC. I still don't know what the T and the C stood for. <laughs> he was a big old Samoan dude. And this guy could oh, literally could throw lift. up huge weight, he, right? He would, yeah. He put all the wheels on the leg press. Yeah. And there were days when he would put more weight than I knew I could possibly ever bench on the bar and they say, all right, I want to see two. I was like, dude, if you're, if you're, you're lucky crazy. if you get one, yeah. you know, I, I know my sternum is going to be broken in half by this bar when it comes down. Cause it ain't going back up. And, and he would get in my face and scream at me and I would actually get one of them up. And then I'd, he'd say, I told you you were going to get two and he'd smack the bar and push it down. Like you got to, got to give me one more. And it would start coming down. And I know mentally I'm done. There's no way that I'm going to be able to get this off my chest. And of course, if you lift weights, you know that the spotter is your salvation, uh -huh. right? And so I'm looking up at this upside down Samoan who's just yelling in my face. And I'd see his fingers up underneath the bar as he'd slowly lift the bar. And I'm like, oh, thank God. You know, he's taking a few yeah. pounds off of me so I can get this thing up. And I I'll never forget one time I racked it and I'm like, yes, I got one. He said, no, you got two. I said, the assist doesn't count. He said, no, you, because you were laying on your back, you didn't see that my fingers were a half an inch below the bar. And I literally just followed you up. Uh -huh. I never touched the bar. That was all you. And he believed in me physically more than I believed in myself. My buddy David is the one who I used to work for him. And he told me, uh, you know, I, he was my boss. And one day I went to him and I said, you know, I really believe that I've, I'm being called into ministry and I need to quit. And his response was, well, why haven't you yet? I've known this forever. Really? Yeah. He said, why, wow. why haven't you yet? And I said, because I, I, I was on draw versus commission. I yeah. owed him a bunch of money. And he said, David, I'm a steward of God's money. That debt's forgiven. You go do what God's called you to do. And he is on my board of directors wow, now. And obviously so he's a vice cool. president of our yeah. ministry. And, but this guy has believed in me when my, only my wife has, you know, yeah. my wife and yeah. David are the two people that have uh, believed in things like the video series, which is a ridiculous blessing to even yeah. have the opportunity to create. So someone that believes in me more than I believe in myself is probably 
top three for me. All right. Well, here's number three on my list. They need to be loyal. And by this, I mean, they're not just using you to network, to go get to another dude. And come on, you guys, you know, people that are around you, they like to be around you. But in reality, what it really feels like is that they're just using a relationship with you to get to somebody who is Mm. maybe bigger or more has more authority, more power, more money than you. So what's next on your list? The ability to commit the time and to be the one that forgives me when I drop off the grid. Yeah. Um, consistency. And we're both equally guilty of becoming inconsistent. As a matter of fact, if we're you and David are, Oh yeah. If yeah. We're, and if we're radio silent for five days, one guy or the other, typically there's a calm shot that comes shortly thereafter. Uh-huh. A call is made, a text is sent. Hey, I haven't seen you or heard from you. He knows me so well that he can, he'll, he will call me out, but there's never any judgment. And to kind of, piggyback off of what you're saying. There's a lot of prayer gossip out there too. You know, you get authentic in a small group and then suddenly everybody is looking at you and you walk in the church because you confess something to one of your brothers who you think there's trust there. And then he goes home and says, well, we really need to pray for Bob because he has a bit of a computer problem. If you know what I mean? Yeah. Air quotes. Computer right. Problem. So, so suddenly we've got, um, confidence that's been compromised. So confidence is a huge yeah, one for definitely. me. Don't violate my confidence. What It's spiritual Las Vegas. What I say to you stays with you yeah. and doesn't become a chapter in a book, an example on a podcast. I mean, we are walking through this life together. And so I want to be comfortable enough to be able to say absolutely anything without that conf- confidence being violated. Yeah. There's got to be trust. I'm going to give you my last two back to back because for me, uh, Ranger Buddy is going to have to be fearless. And by that, I don't mean stands in front of a speeding train. I mean, courageous enough that they're willing to look me in the eyes and say something that nobody wants to say out loud, but it really has to be said. They need to be willing to say, hey, I will stop you. I will punch you in the face if I have to, to stop you from wrecking your life. That's number four on my list. But number five (laughs) on my list is you got to be a little bit crazy because let's just be honest, I'm a little bit crazy. And if you're going to try to come and come along, you're going to have to be a little bit crazy in this thing as well. Because, and this is my big segue right now, David, check this out. Because life is a battle. All of us are in the middle of a battle. Look, it's a battle just to get up, go to work, go Mm -hmm. home, and to do it all over again. All of us are going through this battle, and I shamelessly did that as a plug for your latest book. book. (laughs) So tell everybody about the book Battle and describe the battle for manhood that you're trying to address in this book. Well, this battle is a a dual parallel, and I'm connected... um, through a very odd set of clearly God-type circumstances that got me plugged into the 1st Battalion, 7th U.S. Cavalry Air Mobile. If you've seen the movie We Were uh-huh. Soldiers, you Come know the story now. very well uh, of Hal Moore and a 395-member unit that hit the ground in the Central Highlands of Southern Vietnam on November 14, 1965. I'm a bit of a, a history buff when it comes to this battle. We couldn't tell. And, and every reunion, I get to spend time with the people that were in the battle, not the people in the movie. You know, I don't... Mel Gibson's, yeah, Mel Gibson's great, but, cool, but the guys that but, were in the battle, but Hal Moore was way cool. That's right. You know, and, totally and so agree. to get a chance to hang out with these guys who were obviously up in years at this point and sitting with each one of them from company commander on down to the lowest ranking guy 
uh, a lot of believers in in the room. A lot of you know, Lieutenant General Moore was a devout Christian, solid dude. Yep, uh, and a lot of believe it or not, most of his team in Vietnam was as well. And so as I was hanging out with these guys, hearing these different stories about what they did, the things you don't see in the movie, the yeah. things you don't read in Joe and, and Hal's book, We Were Soldiers Once and Young, these kind of backstories of the training that occurred right up the street at Fort Benning, uh -huh. and, uh, the use of helicopters, which had never been used before, yep. and the M16 and its reliability or lack thereof, and what Sergeant Major Plumley was That's really right. like. Yeah. you know. To, as, I, as I gathered all this intel, uh, I learned very quickly that all the tactics, techniques, and procedures that worked to ensure victory on that battlefield, close air support, artillery fire control, um, fire and maneuver tactics, everything that they did on it the battlefield. It all came together for that one, yep. It also works against the enemy that the Bible says wants to steal, kill, and destroy. Uh -huh. If we take the same footprint that these guys used in battle, any battle, Mogadishu, same idea, the way that you fight and the way that we fight against this enemy that wants to prowl around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour are virtually the same. So I drew parallels between each chapter has a story and obviously a tactic, a small vignette from the battlefield or from the movie or both. Cause I'm a movie buff. My whole ministry is we based on tell. that. Whole ministry is based on movies. Um, and then I draw a parallel biblically to it to ensure success. And the new book also has a 21 day devotional because 21 days forms a habit and a lot of guys and gals don't have that spending time with God tactic down yeah. yet. So I made it, I wrote a very easy to read, uh, very authentic devotional. My linchpin in writing is I'm very real about who I am. Yeah. And because I believe transparency breeds transparency. So that book is based on a battle that they made a movie out of. And the I don't even know how it all started, but suddenly I found myself every year at these reunions for Landing Zone x -ray. Yeah, and it's not your first book, I want to point out. You've mm. got, um, you wrote earlier um, Rough Cut Men, right? Yeah. Um, look, we believe in the book so much that at the end of this episode, we're going to tell you how you can get a free copy. We're going to try to give away a free digital copy of this book, um, The Battle by David. But um, I want to wrap up you, you really helped guys. You're so serious about helping guys that you did this pretty impressive six part mini series, um, telling guys how to, uh, to examine who's really got your six. That's a military term. I'm going to describe the military term, got your six o'clock. Um, but then I want you to describe this, uh, mini series that you did. So two guys go out to battle guy and gal or two gals go out onto the battlefield. You can only see what's in front of you. You cannot be prepared for the enemy that's behind you using clock positions. You can see from nine o'clock to 12 o'clock to six o'clock or to three o'clock, but you can't see the six o'clock because it's behind you. Well, Forrest Gump style, if you find a buddy who comes <laughs> along behind you and they've got your six and you've got their six, now you both can protect and take care of each other and you both are protected all the way around mm -hmm. the clock. So you did this mini series, tell everybody about who's got your six and really describe some of the amazing locations that you had a chance to film at. Okay, so I told you I love movies and I've been doing events since 2009 using different movie clips uh, for biblical lessons for manhood, for support, encouragement, accountability, father wounding, legacy, all these different topics. 
and I had this, this vision that I always wanted to do a video series, but I did not want it to be me standing in front of a podium with a bunch of guys in the room and then flash over to a movie clip and then come back to my ugly mug on the platform again. Uh, so we decided, and this was originally developed for the U.S. Army Chaplain Corps, so that we could be in multiple locations at the same time with a facilitator's guide. Yeah. And, and chaplains could use this, whether they're, you know, no matter where they are in the world, because it's a streaming series, could use it anywhere, uh, to gather three, four guys, make a fire team out of it, and do All this right. video series together. Well, then we released it to the church, because it was a resource that we really believed that the church needed. I... Cr- it's, I only wanted to do it one way, man. I wanted to go wherever the movies were filmed to do a walk and talk on location for each movie. So, for example, Forrest Gump, you mentioned, you uh-huh. know, where Bubba and Forrest are sitting in the That's jungle. Right. And he says, you lean back against me, I'll lean right back against uh-huh. you. We filmed that in Biola Battery, Alabama, nice. where, where Forrest Gump was from, All on right. the deck of a shrimp boat. And uh, we also went to Savannah, Georgia, where he was sitting on the park course, bench and yeah. filmed there as well. Uh, Top Gun, we filmed on the deck of an aircraft carrier, uh, and then up on the bridge right in front of an F-14 Tomcat uh, over in Charleston Harbor. There yeah. happens to be uh, the Yorktown has a nice F-14 Tomcat on the back end of the deck. So, so we basically up there. Said, you said, if we're going to do this, we're going to do it right. Right. We And we, we raised a quarter million dollars and it took about a year and a half. A uh, quarter million dollars of support without even, on nothing more than an idea. Yeah. People, people got the idea. Uh, so then we went Armageddon. We filmed partly on the floor of Mission Control at Johnson Space Center and partly in the Vehicle Assembly Building at Cape Canaveral uh, in Florida. Uh Oh, my gosh. Uh, Rudy got to film the entire thing in the game day locker room at the University of Notre Dame in South Bend also all over the campus and then out on the field and everything else. I got to hit the signs with my fist. For all of you fighting Irish fans, you know this. I got to smack the the play like a champion today sign in the tunnel on the way out onto the field. And then, of course, the... Uh, Johnny Cash walked the line filmed in Sun Studio in Memphis, Tennessee, where Johnny recorded his yeah. first music and partly at his boyhood home in Dice, Arkansas. And then the, uh, the crown jewel of the entire thing is Saving Private Ryan, which we filmed partly on Omaha Beach and partly in the American yeah, Cemetery then, in France. We took the crew to France and we, were, we filmed there for three or four yeah, days. That place is special. Both Normandy and Normandy Beach and the, the Normandy America Cemetery there, man. It is incredible. Incredible. And I had a chance to see a little bit of the scenery and thinking, man, David, when you did this miniseries, you knocked it out of the park. Thank you. Thank you. And it's, it's, it's being used by literally hundreds of groups of men from South Africa, all yeah. over, I mean, Australia, New Zealand, everywhere. So guys are, you just got their attention by talking to them about some of these locations. And if they want to check out, if they want to find the miniseries, Who's Got Your Six, where do they go to find it? Well, it's a stre- it's streaming content because the movie clips are actually embedded in the series. Mm-hmm. So in order to stay clean with fair use copyright law, we cannot give it to you on DVD. So you actually have to borrow it from us via stream. It's donation-based only. And it is on our website at roughcutmen.org. And then you just look for the video series drop down and it will give you all the information. And we, we designed it because we made it for the army uh, where the rule is 50 mic and out, yeah. you know, an hour is 50 That's minutes. Right. We set it up. So the videos are about anywhere from 18 to 23 minutes long. So you get guys together, you watch the video, you eat have some food, and then you have a 30 minute discussion. Yeah. There's a PDF facilitator guide for each episode that will, it's self guiding and you're in and out the door in an hour. And we did that deliberately because our time, as men is valuable and yeah. it's hard to, to find a window. Right. And, Guys are busy. Yeah. And, so are and, gals. and numbers are nothing. You know, I've, we've got some of the best four men fire teams out there yeah. doing 
doing yeah. the video series over and over again. I mean, honestly, we'll put a link for those of you who are driving right now, we'll put a link in the notes to this episode uh, about how to find the website. But let's say that they want to check out your latest book, The Battle. Where do people find that? Where can they get it? You can get both of our books um, on the website as well in the shop. We have a shop with all kinds of different stuff, but the books are there. You can also get it essentially in any platform, digital audio, print form, anywhere you buy books. It's, yeah. it's everywhere. It's, you know, Amazon books a million Barnes and Noble. It's, it's all over the place. So you, David, you can't not find it. Yeah. <laughs> well, David, I just want to kind of wrap the episode up by thanking you, man. There are a lot of guys out there who are saying they wish they had a dude in their life. Like David is to you mm-hmm. and you are to David, but I don't know how to get there. So one of the things that I wanted to do in this episode is to just lay out a, hey, if you wanted to try to find that guy, here's what you look for. If you want to try to start that conversation, here's the way you start it. And David, you laid that out perfectly today. So thanks for making the drive up from Florida to be live in the studio with me and to do this episode of Unbeatable. Jeff, thank you so much. It's been an honor. Really appreciate it, man. Thanks. Hey guys, you just heard about this amazing book called The Battle from David Dusek. And if you want a free copy of this book, we're going to give away a free digital copy. All you got to do is sign up at unbeatablearmy.com. Hey, if you've just found this podcast for the first time, maybe you just stumbled across us on social media. Why don't you go ahead and follow us? You can pretty much search anywhere on any of the social media platforms. Just search at Unbeatable Podcast. Or better yet, if you found us and you like what you found, why don't you rate us on your favorite podcast platform? The reason this podcast exists is to just help you do what David described today. Help you get over some incredible challenges in life. And maybe what you need is a dude or a gal that you can depend on like David described. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Unbeatable.